Chapter 4 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 4. Two days after, the stranger and the orphan had departed for London. When it came to the point of decision, Mrs. Baker's conscience began to reproach her and she doubted the propriety of entrusting her innocent charge to one totally unknown. But the stranger satisfied her doubts. He showed her papers betokening his name and station as John Faulkner, captive to the native cavalry of the East India Company, and, moreover, possessed of such an independence as looked like wealth in the eyes of Mrs. Baker, and at once commanded her respect." his own care was to collect every testimony and relic that might prove the identity of the little elizabeth her unfortunate mother's unfinished letter her bible and prayer-book in the first of which was recorded the birth of her child and a seal which mrs baker's prudence had saved when her avarice caused her to sell the watch with mr robbie's coat of arms and crest engraved a small desk containing a few immaterial papers and letters from strangers addressed to edwin rabby such as was elizabeth's inheritance in looking over the desk mr faulkner found a little foreign almanac embellished with prints and fancifully bound on the first page of which was written in a woman's elegant hand to dearest isabella from her a r had faulkner wanted proof as to the reality of his suspicions with regard to the friend of mrs rabby here was conviction he was about to press the dear handwriting to his lips when feeling his own unworthiness he shuddered through every limb and thrusting the book into his bosom he by a strong effort prevented every outward mark of the thrilling agony which the sight of his victim's writing occasioned it gave at the same time fresh firmness to his resolve to do all that was requisite to restore the orphan daughter of her friend to her place in society she was as a bequest left him by whom he last saw pale and senseless at his feet who had been the dream of his life from boyhood and was now the phantom to haunt him with remorse to his latest hour to replace the dead to the lovely child was impossible he knew the incomparable virtues of her to whom her mother bequeathed her while every thought that tended to recall her to his memory was armed with a double sting regret at having lost horror at the fate he had brought upon her by what strange incalculable and yet sure enchainment of events had he been brought to supply her place she was dead through his accursed machination she no longer formed a portion of the breathing world how marvellous that he flying from memory and conscience resolved to expiate his half involuntary guilt by his own death should have landed at treby still more wondrous were the motives hair slight in appearance yet on which so vast a weight of circumstance hung that led him to the twilight churchyard and had made mrs rabby's grave the scene of the projected tragedy which had brought the orphan to guard that grave from pollution caused her to stay his upraised hand and gained for herself a protector by the very act whoever has been the victim of a tragic event whoever has experienced life and hope the past and the future wrecked by one fatal catastrophe must be at once dismayed and awestruck 
to trace the secret agency of a thousand foregone disregarded and trivial events which all led to the deplored end and served as it were as invisible meshes to envelop the victim in the fatal net had the meanest among these been turned aside the progress of the destroying destiny had been stopped but there is no voice to cry hold no prophesying eye to discern the unborn event and the future inherits its whole portion of woe awed by the mysteries that encompassed and directed his steps which used no agency except unseen but not unfelt power which surrounds us with motive as with an atmosphere faulkner yielded his hitherto unbending mind to control he was satisfied to be led and not to command his impatient spirit wondered at this new docility while yet he felt some slight self-satisfaction steal over him and the prospect of being useful to the helpless little being who stood before him weak in all except her irresistible claim to his aid imparted such pleasure as he was surprised to feel once again he visited the churchyard of treby accompanied by the orphan she was loath to quit the spot she could with difficulty consent to leave mamma but mrs baker had made free use of a grown-up person's much abused privilege of deceit and told her lies in abundance sometimes promising that she should soon return sometimes assuring her that she would find her mother alive and well at the grand palace whither she was going yet despite the fallacious hopes she cried and sobbed bitterly during her last visits to her parents graves faulkner tried to soothe her saying we must leave papa and mamma dearest god has taken them from you but i will be a new papa to you the child raised her head which she had buried in his breast and in infantine dialect and accent said will you be good to her and love baby as papa did yes dearest child i promise always to love you will you love me and call me your papa papa dear papa she cried clinging round his neck my new good papa and then whispering in his ear she softly but seriously added i can't have a new mamma i won't have any but my own mamma no pretty one said faulkner with a sigh you will never have another mamma she is gone who would have been a second mother and you are wholly orphaned an hour after they were on the road to london and full of engrossing and torturing thoughts as faulkner was still he was called out of himself and forced to admire the winning ways the enchanting innocence and loveliness of his little charge we human beings are so unlike one to the other that it is often difficult to make one person understand that there is a force in an impulse which is omnipotent with another children to some are mere animals unendued with instinct troublesome and unsightly with others they possess a charm that reaches to the heart's core and stirs the purest and most generous portions of our nature faulkner had always loved children in the indian wilds which for many years he had inhabited the sight of a young native mother with her babe had moved him to envious tears the fair fragile offspring of european women with blooming faces and golden hair had often attracted him to bestow kind offices on parents whom otherwise he would have disregarded the fiery passions of his own heart caused him to feel a soothing repose while watching the innocent gambols of childhood while his natural energy 
which scarcely ever found sufficient scope for exercise, led him to delight in protecting the distressed. If the mere chance spectacle of infant helplessness was wont to excite his sympathy, this sentiment, by the natural workings of the human heart, became far more lively when so beautiful and perfect a creature as Elizabeth Rabby was thrown upon his protection. No one could have regarded her unmoved. Her silver-toned laugh went to the heart. Her alternately serious or gay looks, each emanating from the spirit of love, her caresses, her little words of endearment, the soft pressure of her tiny hand and warm rosy lips were all as charming as beauty and the absence of guile could make them. And he, the miserable man, was charmed and pitied the mother who had been forced to desert so sweet a flower, leaving to the bleak elements a blossom which had been paradise for her to have cherished and sheltered in her own bosom for ever. At each moment Faulkner became more enchanted with his companion. Sometimes they got out of the chaise to walk up a hill. Then, taking the child in his arms, he plucked flowers for her from the hedges, or she ran on before and gathered them for herself, now pulling ineffectually at some stubborn parasite, now pricking herself with briar when his help was necessary to assist and make all well again. When again in the carriage she climbed on his knee and stuck the flowers in his hair to make papa fine and as trifles affect the mind when rendered sensitive by suffering so was he moved by her trying to remove the thorns of the wild roses before she decorated him with them at other times she twisted them among her own ringlets and laughed to see herself mirrored in the front glasses of the chaise sometimes her mood changed and she prattled seriously about mamma asked if he did not think that she was sorry at baby's going so far, far away, or, remembering the fanciful talk of her mother when her father died, she asked whether she were not following them through the air. As evening closed in, she looked out to see whether she could not perceive her. I cannot hear her. She does not speak to me, she said. Perhaps she is a long way off in that tiny star. But then she can see us. Are you there, Mamma? Artlessness and beauty are more truly imagined on the canvas than in the written page. Were we to see the lovely orphan thus pictured, and Italian artists and our own Reynolds have painted such, with uplifted finger, her large earnest eyes looking inquiringly and tenderly for the shadowy form of her mother, as she might fancy it descending toward her from the little star her childish fancy singled out, a half-smile on her lips contrasted with the seriousness of her baby brow. If we could see such visibly presented on the canvas, the world would crowd round to admire. This pen but feebly traces the living grace of the little angel, but it was before Faulkner. It stirred him to pity first and then to deeper regret. He strained the child to his breast, thinking, Oh, yes, I might have been a better and a happy man. False Alethea, why through your inconstancy are such joys buried forever in your grave? A few minutes after, and the little girl fell asleep, nestled in his arms. Her attitude had all the inartificial grace of childhood. Her face hushed to repose, yet breathed of affection. Faulkner turned his eyes from her to the starry sky. His heart swelled impatiently, his past life lay as a map unrolled before him. 
He had desired a peaceful happiness, the happiness of love. His fond aspirations had been snakes to destroy others and to sting his own soul to torture. He wreathed under the consciousness of the remorse and horror which were henceforth to track his path of life. Yet, even while he shuddered, he felt that a revolution was operating within himself. He no longer contemplated suicide. That which had so lately appeared a mark of courage were now the guise of cowardice. And yet, if he were to live, where and how should his life be passed? He recoiled from the solitude of the heart which had marked his early years, and yet he felt that he could never more link himself in love or friendship to any. He looked upon the sleeping child and began to conjecture whether he might not find in her the solace he needed. Should he not adopt her, mold her heart to affection, teach her to lean on him only, be all the world to her, while her gentleness and caresses would give life a charm, without which it were vain to attempt to endure existence? He reflected what Elizabeth's probable fate would be if he restored her to her father's family. Personal experience had given him a horror for the forbidding, ostentatious kindness of distant relations that hers resembled such as he had known, and were imperious and cold-hearted, their conduct not only to Mrs. Rabby, but previously to a meritorious son, did not permit him to doubt. If he made the orphan over to them, their luxuries and station would ill stand instead of affection and heartfelt kindness. Soft, delicate, and fond, she would pine and die. With him, on the contrary, she would be happy, he would devote himself to her, every wish gratified, her gentle disposition carefully cultivated, no rebuke, no harshness, his arms ever open to receive her in grief, his hand to support her in danger. Was not this a fate her mother would have preferred? In bequeathing her to her friend, she showed how little she wished that her sweet girl should pass into the hands of her husband's relations. Could he not replace that friend of whom he had so cruelly robbed her, whose loss was to be attributed to him alone? We all are apt to think that when we discard a motive, we cure a fault, and foster the same error from a new cause with a safe conscience. Thus, even now, aching and sore from the tortures of remorse for past faults, Faulkner indulged in the same propensity which apparently innocent in its commencement had led to fatal results. He meditated doing rather what he wished than what was strictly just. He did not look forward to the evils his own course involved, while he saw in disproportionate magnitude those to be brought about if he gave up his favorite's project. What ills might arise to the orphan from his interweaving her fate with his, he a criminal in act, if not in intention, who might be called upon hereafter to answer for his deeds, and who at least must fly and hide himself, of this he thought not, while he determined that, fostered and guarded by him, Elizabeth must be happy, and under the tutelage of her relations she would become the victim of hard-hearted neglect. These ideas floated somewhat indistinctly in his mind, and it was half unconsciously that he was building from them a fabric for the future as deceitful as it was alluring. After several days' traveling, Faulkner found himself with his young charge in London, and then he began to wonder wherefore he had repaired thither, 
and to consider that he must form some settled scheme for the future. He had in England neither relation nor friend whom he cared for. Orphaned at an early age, neglected by those who supported him, at least as far as the affections were concerned, he had, even in boyhood, known intimately and loved but one person only, she who had ruled his fate to this hour and was now among the dead. Sent to India in early youth, he had there to make his way in defiance of poverty, of want of connection, of his own overbearing disposition, and the sense of wrong early awakened that made him proud and reserved. At last, most unexpectedly, the death of several relations caused the family estate to devolve upon him, and he had sold his commission in India and hastened home, with his heart so set upon one object that he scarcely reflected or reflected only to congratulate himself on how alone he stood. And now that his impetuosity and ill-regulated passions had driven the dear object of all his thoughts to destruction, still he was glad that there were none to question him, none to wonder at his resolves, to advise or to reproach. Still, a plan was necessary. The very act of his life, which had been so big with ruin and remorse, enjoined some forethought. It was probable that he was already suspected, if not known. Detection and punishment in a shape most loathsome would overtake him, did he not shape his measures with prudence. And as hate as well as love had mixed strongly in his motives, he was in no humor to give his enemies the triumph of visiting his crime on him. What is written in glaring character in our own consciousness we believe to be visible to the whole world. And Faulkner, after arriving in London, after leaving Elizabeth at a hotel, and walking into the streets, felt as if discovery was already on him, when he was accosted by an acquaintance, who asked him where he had been, what he had been doing, and why he was looking so disusedly ill. He stammered some reply, and was hastening away, when his friend, passing his arm through his, said, "'I must tell you the strangest occurrence I ever heard of. I have just parted from a man. Do you remember a Mr. Neville, whom you dined with at my house when last in town?' Faulkner at this moment exercised with success the wonderful mastery which he possessed over feature and voice, and coldly replied that he did remember. "'And do you remember our conversation after he left us?' said his friend, "'and my praises of his wife, whom I exalted as the pattern of virtue. "'Who can know, woman? I could have bet any sum that she would preserve her good name to the end, and she has eloped. "'Well,' said Faulkner, is that all? Is that the most wonderful circumstance ever heard? Had you known, Mrs. Neville, replied his companion, you would be as astonished as I, with all her charms, all her vivacity. Never had the breath of scandal reached her. She seemed one of those whose hearts, though warm, are proof against the attacks of love, and with ardent affections yet turn away from passion superior and unharmed yet she has eloped with a lover. There is no doubt of that fact, for he was seen, they were seen going off together, and she has not been heard of since. Did Mr. Neville pursue them? asked Faulkner. He is even now in full pursuit, vowing vengeance more enraged than I ever beheld men. Unfortunately, he does not know who the seducer is, nor have the fugitives yet been traced. 
The whole affair is the most mysterious, a lover dropped from the clouds, an angel of virtue subdued almost before she is sought. Still they must be found out, they cannot hide themselves forever. And then there will be a duel to the death, asked Faulkner in the same uh, icy accents. No, replied the other, Mrs. Neville has no brother to fight for her, and her husband breathes law only. Whatever vengeance the law will afford, that he will use to the utmost. He is too angry to fight. The poltron, exclaimed Faulkner, and thus he loses his sole chance of revenge. I know not that, replied his companion. He has formed a thousand schemes of chastisement for both offenders, more dread than the field of honor. There is, to be sure, a mean as well as an indignant spirit in him, that reveals rather in the thought of inflicting infamy than death. He utters a thousand mysterious threats. I do not see exactly what he can do. But when he discovers his injurer, as he must some day, and I believe there are letters that afford a clue, he will wreck all that a savage and yet a sordid desire of vengeance can suggest. Poor Mrs. Neville, after all, she must have lived a sad life with such a fellow. And here we part, said Faulkner. I am going another way. You have told me a strange story. It will be curious to mark the end. Farewell. Brave to rashness as Faulkner was, yet there was much in what he had just heard that made him recoil and almost tremble. What the vengeance was that Mr. Neville could take, he too well knew, and he resolved to defeat it. His plans, before vague, were formed on the instant. His lip curled with a disdainful smile when he recollected what his friend had said of the mystery that hung over the late occurrences. He would steep them all in tenfold obscurity. To grieve for the past was futile, or rather nothing he could do would prevent or alleviate the piercing regret that tortured him, but that need not influence his conduct. To leave his arch-enemy wreathing from injury, yet powerless to revenge himself, blindly cursing he knew not who, and removing the object of his curses from all danger of being hurt by them, was an image not devoid of satisfaction. Acting in conformity with these ideas, the next morning saw him on the road to Dover, Elizabeth still his companion, resolved to seek oblivion in foreign countries and far climes, and happy at the same time to have her with him, whose infantine caresses already poured balm upon his rankling wounds. End of chapter 4